tomorrow, only on Disney Plus. My name is Taylor. Welcome to the Eras Tour. Experience Taylor Swift's record-breaking Eras Tour. Swift, the Eras Tour, Taylor's version, with four additional acoustic songs. Streaming tomorrow, only on Disney+. Plus. You're listening to All the Books, a weekly show of recommendations and enthusiasm regarding the week's new book releases. This is episode 411, and today we are talking about books being released on April 25th, 2023, and more. I'm Liberty Hardy, here with Kelly Jensen, and we're coming to you from bookriot.com. Kelly, hello! Hello! How are you? I am alright, how are you? I am great! Possibly because I didn't go to bed last night, so I'm a little (laughs) hyper, but that's okay! I stayed up all night and read books, and that was really fun, which is like something I can't do as much anymore because age. <laughs> mm, I feel that. I feel that. Yeah. I like, I can make it about an hour after I go to bed, like climb in bed, that is. Um, and then I, I'm out. I, I'm in bed by like 7.30. Oh my goodness. So, yeah. But, you know, I'm old. It's fine. Well, you're up early and, you know, it happens. Yeah. I just don't like sleep still. You know, and I know I'm supposed to do it, but last night I was like, I just sat up on the couch and read books on my TV and it was awesome. (laughs) Yeah, really fun. So, and I'm really excited to talk about books. Uh, Let's see, I have a couple of things to tell you. First is that from my quick search, I do not believe there is an area code that coexists with 411. 411 is the number for directory assistance. Mm. I keep being told. So if there Mm. is an area code out there, 411, hello, there were a bunch of you from the 410 area code who reached out. So, way to represent. Very exciting. Got some cat pictures. It's all it's all good. The other thing I had to tell you is last week I was mentioning that I was reading Juno Loves Legs. And I was worried about what was going to happen to the evil priest's dog. I'm happy to report that no harm comes to the evil priest's dog. Mm-hmm. I cannot say the same for the priest. But... The dog is fine. And that is what is important. (laughs) Uh, Let's see. What else do we have? You're visiting with us again today. We are sending our love out to Patricia, who we love and miss. And we'll be back eventually. Yeah. Yeah, she will. You know, I know she's been off the show, but we've all been talking to her regularly. Oh, yeah. You know, she's, she's doing about what you would expect her to do. And when she's ready to be back, she will. Yeah. What about you? You've been doing some talks at schools for important things. <sighs> yeah. I, um, this past week, shout out to my uh, teacher friend, if you're listening. I did an event that was put together by a friend of mine from high school who is now a high school English teacher and, um, a doctor. She just got her PhD like last week and like didn't say anything about it. I'm like, uh, that's pretty, pretty big accomplishment that you should be just being like, I'm, I'm doctor now, you know? Anyway, so it was this literary festival for high school students and I got to deliver the keynote to them. And we talked about book bands and why they need to keep raising their voices, why it's important that they tell stories. And then I got to run 
pair of writing workshops with the students, which was so much fun. These kids were hilarious. And the workshop I run is one that's generative. So they like create something while they're in there. And a lot of it starts with like brainstorming some ideas and the results of these stories, the results of these ideas they came up with. I was just like, I, I am in awe. And also like, I want to hang out with you guys more because you're so cool. (laughs) Not in a creepy way, but in a like, it's inspiring to be around young people who are just so like, full of ideas and energy and enthusiasm for everything, you know? Yeah, that's really great. Really great. So we are going to talk about books that were written by people who were kids at one time. Mm -hmm. And eventually we'll talk about books written by the kids that you probably met. Before (laughs) we do that, I want to mention that you can sign up for our newest newsletter, The Deep Dive. You can subscribe by going to bookriot.substack.com. You'll get fascinating stories, informed takes, useful advice, and more from experts in the world of books and reading. We are tapping the experts to share longer gems based on years of knowledge about books and publishing, experiences as readers and book curators, and research on lesser-known histories to illuminate and inspire book lovers. For $5 a month, there was no pause there, I don't know why, for $5 a month, you get this deep dive edition of our newsletter in your inbox twice a month. And if you're on the fence, need some time to, to make the decision, a free subscription will get you the splash pad, which rounds up some of our experts' recommended reading and bookish lifestyle goods monthly. So visit bookriot.substack.com to check it out. And now we are going to hear from today's sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by National Geographic Books. The Cave is the incredible memoir of Imani Balur, a young doctor and activist who ran an underground hospital in Damascus, humanizing the enduring crisis in Syria. The only woman to have ever run a wartime hospital in Syria, she saved many from the atrocities of war while having to face the patriarchal conservatism around her. Amani Balor is a game changer. Listen, she will be remembered as one of history's greatest. She's a passionately committed humanitarian, and she is determined to help others escape the horrors that she survived. Make sure to pick up the memoir, The Cave by Amani Balor and Rania Abuzaid for a memoir that expands on the 2019 Oscar nominated film by the same name, which documents her experience running the hospital, shielding children from horrific sarin attack, losing colleagues, trying to employ more women in the hospital, and eventually leaving and becoming a refugee. So make sure to read about this amazing woman. And thanks again to National Geographic Books for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita De Monte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez. So this is one of my most anticipated books of the year. It follows two women of color who are in the art world, but who also kind of sit outside of it because of a lack of privilege. So the story is told from both of their perspectives and it moves back and forth through time. So in 1985, Anita DeMonte is a rising star in the art world and she's found dead in New York City, right? And then in 1998, Raquel, a third year art history student, becomes involved with an older, more privileged art student and finds herself rising up the social ranks as a result. But then she also stumbles upon Anita's story and she sees parallels between Anita's story and her own. So Anita DeMonte Laughs Last is a propulsive, witty examination of power. Make sure to pick it up. And thanks again to Flatiron Books, publisher of Anita DeMonte Laughs Last by Sochil Gonzalez for sponsoring this episode. <laughs> <laughs> 
I did pause there. I, I don't know what happened, except that maybe I'm just overtired. But I'm so excited to talk about books. Like, you know, usually we get on the phone and, you know, people, the hosts say, how are you? And I'm like, oh, this and this and this. And we all like commiserate. But today I was like, yay, Kelly, good luck to you. (laughs) (laughs) So I am going to kick it off with Ghost Girl Banana. There's a comma there. A pause (laughs) after Ghost Girl. Ghost Girl Banana by Wiz Wharton, which is like the coolest name I've heard this year. It is an amazing debut. Just an incredible work of historical fiction set between 1966 and 1996. In 1966, Suryan's mother and brother send her off to nursing school in London in the hopes that she will get a job and send home some money. Their father has left them for his mistress, and Suryan's family is struggling. Also, Mao has started the Cultural Revolution in China, and times are tough for the citizens. Her brother is worried about his job because he is a teacher. In 1996, as the chapters go back and forth, we meet Lily, who is also struggling. She lost her mother, Sun Yin, when she was very young. Her family left Hong Kong when she was just little. She doesn't remember her mother, who died. And now, many years later, 30 years later, she has lost her father. Or 24, I think she's 24, 24 years later. She has lost her father. We know that Lily had a hard time in college. She was in college and she had to leave. And she was assigned mental health care, and she goes to see a therapist every week. Uh, She now volunteers at a charity shop. She daydreams about opening a music school. And she lives off of what little is left of her inheritance from her father. Now, her older sister, Maya, is a lawyer. She's married to a millionaire architect, and she lives in a completely different world than Lily. One day, Lily gets a letter saying that a stranger in Hong Kong who knew her mother has left Lily, half a million pounds. The stipulation is, after she finds out that this is in fact real, it's not a a prank or a scam or anything, the stipulation is that she must go to Hong Kong to receive it. At first, Lily is on the fence. She's like, ooh, half a million pounds. But, you know, she talks to her sister, who also received a letter and would also receive half a million pounds. And her sister is like, we should just ignore it. Like, we're not a part of that family. We don't know what they want. Like, it's fine. I'll take care of you. Like, don't worry about it. But then things happen that change Lily's mind, and she heads off to Hong Kong. As the story goes back and forth, we follow Sun Yin in London as she dreams of the boy she left behind, and meets the man who will be her husband and the father of her girls. Spoiler, he kind of sucks. He takes advantage of Sun Yin, because while she speaks some English, she doesn't know enough not to trust what people tell her. He makes himself out to be a big businessman, making tons of money, who can get her a job where she will make tons of money, but it turns out that he is just a pencil pusher who lives in a disgusting apartment with incredibly racist parents. Suddenly, Sunyan is in an unfamiliar country, abandoned by her family, who are ashamed of her for leaving her nursing school, for taking up with a white man, and now she has also has a husband and, a ch- and children to support. Meanwhile, Lily runs into some trouble soon after getting to Hong Kong, and then she meets the son of the man who left the money, and he takes her on a tour of Kowloon, and she begins to learn about the mother she never knew. It's an ambitious, wonderful novel about family, obligation, culture, and belonging. Lily's biracial. She doesn't speak the language in Hong Kong, even though it's where she was born, and she feels judged for it by the people who live there. Uh, and Sun Yin is hoping for a better life in London and to support her family, but people treat her differently. And meanwhile, her family still has a grip on her from Hong Kong, and they are not very nice to her. 
It's an excellent debut. They just announced that it's going to be made into a movie. There was a big bidding war. Um, and it's just wonderful. I do want to give content warnings, including body shaming, mental illness, and suicide, illness and death of a loved one, infidelity, car accidents, sexual assault, misogyny, racism, and racist language. That is Ghost Girl, comma, Banana by Wiz Wharton. So my first pick this week is called Momfluenced by Sarah Peterson. And I want to begin talking about this book by saying I listened to an incredible podcast all about mom influencers either last year or the year before by Joe Piazza called Under the Influence. It's a really incredibly respectful show about the work of these mega influencers in the mom sphere. And it does a really good job of talking about the ways in which Racism are at play even here, both when it comes to sponsorship of mom influencers as well as the algorithm. And if this is a topic you are at all interested in, I highly recommend the podcast, which is cited several times throughout the book. And it's it feels like a natural companion and extension of the book. So who are mommy influencers and how has this become such a huge thing in social media? Peterson dives deep into the history of mom influencers, beginning with bloggers and moving through social media, including Instagram and TikTok. It's a fascinating look at the way that motherhood is and is not presented online, as well as where and how the ideas and ideals of motherhood are consumed by outsiders. One reason so many people love mommy influencers is that they present an alternate reality of motherhood. And another is that they can be honest about how messy and imperfect and downright befuddling it is to be a parent. This book is both a critique as much as it is uh, an investigation and lightly memoir-esque look at contemporary motherhood. Peterson pulls from her own experience with mother influencers and provides interviews with people as far-ranging as psychologists to linguists to mom influencers themselves. For so long, motherhood has been a private domain, but because we have access to social media, it's become a highly monetizable means of content generation and there is just so much money being exchanged in this world. But at what cost to the creators, their kids, and those who may not fit that white, whimsical mode, if you will? One of the things that I found most interesting in this book, and I keep coming back to, is the rise of this neutral aesthetic and design. And this is something that I've been fascinating with because we live in a world where color continues to disappear. There's been an article floating around and I wish I could cite it right here, but I don't have it handy. Talking about just like our world has become less saturated in color. And on Instagram, the reason that this neutral look came is thanks in part to the ways that that look helps products look better in photographs. So this is really fascinating because it keenly connects with the rise of more neutral colored buildings and items, which represent this idea of disposability and replaceability. And of course, whiteness and all that whiteness represents culturally, socially, and politically. If the world of mom influencers interests you at all, or you want to read a book about a cultural trend that has broader implications, you'll dig this one. 
Think Gia Tolentino, but a little bit more straightforward in approach. And I say that as somebody who loves Tolentino style, which this book doesn't quite do, but does in terms of like how material is thoughtfully explored and the nuances of the topic are discussed. And that is Mom Fluenced by Sarah Peterson. Okay. My next pick is a sci-fi horror novel. Oh, I want to mention last week, I was talking about how I thought that I was done reading horror for a while, and as soon as I said those words and got them down on recording, uh, I just want to read horror all the time again now. So that lasted about two seconds, and it's because it's so fun! This is a sci-fi horror novel. It is called Ascension by Nicholas Binge, and like I said, it's really fun. It has this old-fashioned horror sense to it that I really enjoyed because it's written in found letters. Uh, they're from an uncle to his niece. And it's like, and then we did this. And I don't know if this is going to, you know, get to you or if we're going to make it or what. And I just had like this like old timey feel that I really enjoyed. Now the uncle in question is physicist Harold Tunmore. We know from the introduction written uh, in Harold's book that Harold's brother tells us that Harold was always brilliant he was always different. He was a loner. No one knew what to expect from him. He would like go off and not show up for years and then come back. And he did form a relationship with his brother's niece, uh, who he seemed to care for very deeply. And that is who these letters are addressed to. We also know that he has been missing for 29 years. So this is like 1997, I think now, when this, when this is being told. And these letters that Harold has written tell of an impossible occurrence. One day, Harold is contacted by a secretive agency and asked to go with them. Why, he asks them. They can't say. Where, he asks them. They can't say. All they can tell him is that something has happened, an expedition has failed, and many people didn't make it back. Where, they can't tell him. But when they tell him that his ex-wife is where they want to take him, that she is one of the only ones to come back from that failed expedition, he agrees to go. So they put him on this flight. They don't tell him where he's going. All he knows is that he's been flying in this plane over the ocean for a really, really, really long time. And all of a sudden, they land on a mountain. A mountain in the middle of the ocean with no other land around it that is impossibly high. Like, over three times the height of Everest. It, this mountain just simply should not exist. And did not exist a couple of months ago. This is the secretive place that they are taking him. And these people want to know what is at the top of this mountain. Now, it's freezing cold there. Even at the base... It's freezing cold. Everything is covered in snow and ice. And they are told that they are going to ascend the mountain, but it's going to be very treacherous. It's, you know, altitude sickness can happen. They have oxygen tanks and, you know, snow blindness and just all kinds of things, ice. So the team sets out. They have Harold, who I mentioned is a physicist, plus a geologist, a biologist, an anthropologist, two military members who have been kind of running the show, this horrible climbing scout who bullies everyone, and Harold X, who is a medic, plus three soldiers who are armed to the teeth. Now, why do they need guns? They can't say. Naoko, Harold X, the medic, is not well. Like I said, she had already been on this expedition. She can't really talk about what happened. Uh, he thought that they might have a conversation and kind of reconnect when he gets there. He hasn't seen her in many years. But all she does is scream and she yells things that make no sense about time and, and things that don't exist. And But they've insisted that she has to come with them because she's the only one who's been up there before. 
And as the team climbs, things start to happen. Harold thinks he sees things in the snow. People's tempers start to flare. And weird things are happening to the time. Is it altitude sickness or something else? In between their climb to the top, we learn the story of Harold and Naoko and why they are no longer together. Now, I don't want to spoil anything for you about what's going on with this mountain, what they're going to find. So I will just say, if you liked The Anomaly by Michael Rucker, if you like Christopher Golden, if you like scary expedition adventures, this is a great book to pick up. I liked the science. I liked some of the things he said. Um, He talks about how mountains are formed by being pushed up from the earth. So... Essentially, the top of a mountain is older than the bottom of a mountain, and so if you climb a mountain, you are traveling back in time, which I just thought was like a really cool sentiment. I thought that was very neat. And there's some more cool things like that. It's a little Scooby-Doo-ish at the end. There's, you know, I don't like to say bad things about books, um, but I do like to be honest, and, and there was one thing that happened that made me roll my eyes so hard, they probably made a sound. But when you propose grand, impossible ideas... You sometimes have to have grand, impossible solutions. It, it was just, did not, it did not detract from my enjoyment of the book. It was so much fun. I do want to give content warnings for violence, murder, gore, illness and death of loved ones, bullying, misogyny, physical assaults, child endangerment, and death of a child. And because of the altitude sickness, because of what's going on in this mountain, there is a lot of discussion about mental incapacitation as well as suicides. So just a heads up going into it, they start basically from the very beginning. But this is Ascension by Nicholas Binge. My next book is book is Hungry Ghost by Victoria Ying. And content warnings before I even dive in, because this is a graphic novel about disordered eating. So that is going to come up as it is the key theme in the story. So this is a fiction graphic novel, but Ying's foray into realistic comics is based on her own lived experience with an eating disorder. Valerie Chu is a quiet, studious girl who is obedient to her mother and her father, as well as a dedicated and loyal friend to Jordan, her bestie. The other thing Valerie is, and the thing she is extremely proud of, is that she's thin. Since her earliest recollections, being thin has been prized by her mother, and her mother has really monitored her food intake. The book starts off with a scene at a birthday party in her youth when Valerie was allowed to blow out the candles on her birthday cake, but she was not allowed to eat a piece of it herself. And then the story flashes forward to high school, and while Valerie does eat socially, she follows that up by purging um, immediately after. Her head is a running calculator on calories, and while it's clear she has a problem, it's even clearer that her struggles emerge thanks to the toxic culture that her mom developed at home. Now Valerie is really excited. She's going on this class trip to Paris. She's thrilled to be going with her best friend Jordan and her crush Alan. Val tells herself that she's going to ignore the voices in her head and is going to enjoy the food on this trip. Like, how often do you get to go to Paris, France? She's going to take advantage of it. But early in the trip, not only does she give in to the voices, but she gets some news that completely rattles her world. And within hours, she's on a plane back to her home, and the food obsession becomes even harder for her to manage. When everyone else from school returns back from Paris, Jordan comes to see Val, and Val 
is wrestling both with her eating disorder and with grief at this point, and she learns that Jordan and her crush, Alan, had shared a kiss. Val is absolutely seething, thinking that Jordan stole her crush, even though Val never once told Jordan about the crush. In her rage and her grief, Val tells Jordan that she cannot believe somebody like her could ever get a boy to pay attention to her. And if you're like, well, what do you mean a person like her? Jordan, who is Val's best friend, I said before, um, is fat. And now Val has given Jordan one of the cruelest comments imaginable. This book is very, very hard to read, but it is a powerful and moving portrayal of bulimia, grief, and the unique pressures that come from immigrant parents onto their children. In this case, Val's mom has high standards and expectations for her daughter's physique in part because of the high value of thinness in some Asian cultures and in Val's family in particular. Valerie's mom constantly talks about her daughter not becoming like Jordan and getting fat because if she were to do so, she would never succeed in life. It's that mentality that drives Val's comments to Jordan later in the story. And when she realizes what she's done, Val has to reckon with the beliefs instilled in her from her mother and untangle them from her own true beliefs. The art in this comic is outstanding, with really beautiful color work from Lynette Wong in shades of pastel, pinks, purples, and greens. Jordan, who is fat, is rendered in such a beautiful and vibrant way that contrasts with Val's somewhat duller and sadder appearance. This isn't at all about their bodies, but about the emotional realities of their characters coming through in the coloring and the styling. And as the comic progresses, we get to see how things change here. I read this one immediately after finishing Amy Spaulding's fat positive book, No Boy Summer, which came out last week, and think that the two are in a really wonderful conversation with each other. And more, I think Ying captures mental illness in such a raw realistic and haunting kind of way. This is a really quick read, but it's one that's going to stick with you for a long time. And that is Hungry Ghost by Victoria Ying. Okay, so those are some of today's releases that we have read and enjoyed. Now we're going to talk about a few more of today's releases in hardcover and paperback that we're excited about but haven't necessarily read. I'm going to kick it off with The Skin and Its Girl by Sarah Cipher. This is about a young, queer, Palestinian-American woman. The story is that her family belongs to the Soap Dynasty. They have a soap factory in Palestine. And one day there, a baby is born whose skin turns blue. And they declare it to be a great sign because apparently blue soap used to be made because it was the symbol of love or something. The factory is later destroyed in a bombing. And now, 30 years later, a woman named Betty returns to Palestine, uh, to visit the grave of her great-aunt who ran the factory. Now, I couldn't tell from the blurb. I'm just guessing that Betty is the blue girl, but I couldn't... It doesn't say that she is. Um, So I'm just guessing that she is. But uh, Betty has been in America. She's in love with a woman. But now that she's home, she's torn between family and love. She also discovers secrets about her great-aunt that suggest she also hid her sexuality growing up. This has amazing reviews. The premise kind of reminds me of 30 Names for Night, which is another incredible novel that everyone should read. It is The Skin and Its Girl by Sarah Cipher. My next pick is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture by Virginia Soul Smith. 
I'm going to start by saying I had plans to talk about a different work of nonfiction hitting shelves today. And then I saw some comments from the author that made me realize we were maybe not on the same page about her thesis. And instead of having to like caveat everything I was trying to say, I decided to pick a different book. And I picked this one because it came highly recommended by my nerd crush, Aubrey Gordon. And so I feel really good about recommending it, even though I haven't read it yet. Um, It is at the top of my TBR. I'm raising a daughter. And it has been mind-boggling to me how the sexist messaging begins early. And those messages are, of course, also laden in body image realities, too. Soul Smith's book is about the insidious nature of diet culture as it relates to children and the people who raise them. Did you know that before kindergarten, most kids know or assume that the word fat is a bad word. This particular book aims to reclaim the word even further and help caretakers navigate the challenges of destigmatizing the language around our bodies. I, my kid is tall and lean, and the messages I already hear about how lucky she is absolutely astounds me. I am short and fat, so imagine what she's seeing or believing about her body and my body and the people who have all different kinds of bodies in the world, and she is just two years old. Like, it makes me so angry to think about. She doesn't get to experience this on her own because she's being given all these messages. Um, If you, like me, are a huge fan of the Maintenance Phase podcast, this will be totally up your alley, whether or not you're a caregiver. Soul Smith breaks down the lies about childhood obesity and the so-called obesity epidemic that we hear about nonstop in the news, as well as where and how panic around the so-called childhood obesity epidemic has led to disordered eating, poor health care treatments and outcomes for kids, and it continues to perpetuate harmful ideas of health and fatness and body image in young people. As Soul Smith says, this is about undermining the culture because that's what needs fixing. Our bodies nor our kids' bodies are not the ones that need to be fixed here. And that is Fat Talk, Parenting in the Age of Diet Culture by Virginia Soulsmith. Okay, before I tell you about my next pick, we are going to hear from another sponsor. Today's episode is brought to you by Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing. So this book I'm about to tell you about might be the next book talk, darling. It's a high octane fantasy adventure filled with risk, romance, action, and sweet vengeance. In it, there are five liars who have five agendas, but only one target. So in Five Broken Blades from author Mae Corlin, the five most dangerous liars in the land have been mysteriously summoned to work together for a single objective, which is to kill the cruel God King June. Each has tasted bitterness, from the hired hitman seeking atonement to the lovely assassin dreaming of freedom, to even the prince exiled for his own crimes. This is a high-stakes game of treachery where the vengeance is sweet, the secrets are delicious, and each page deepens a journey that will keep you guessing until the very end. This also has themes of friendship, found family. You got a little bit of everything in this. Make sure to check out Five Broken Blades, and thanks again to Entangled Publishing's Red Tower Books, publisher of the smash hit Fourth Wing, for sponsoring this episode. Today's episode is brought to you by William Morrow. I'll be dead in three months. Come tell my story. Imagine someone told you that. 
That's what Sebastian Trapp, a reclusive mystery novelist, told to his longtime correspondent, Nikki Hunter, an expert in detective fiction. So with only a few months left to live, Trapp invites Nikki to his spectacular San Francisco mansion to help draft his life story, living alongside his beautiful second wife, Diana, his wayward nephew, Freddie, and his protective daughter, Madeline. But soon, Nikki finds herself caught in an irresistible case of real-life detective fever. Make sure to pick up End of Story by New York Times bestselling author A.J. Finn for a book that gives Knives Out, that gives White Lotus. You'll like this if you like books by Lucy Foley, Nita Prose, and others. So make sure to pick it up, check it out. And thanks again to William Morrow for sponsoring this episode. All right. My other choice for today that I am excited to read is called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Detterer. This is based off of the viral Paris Review essay, What Do We Do With the Art of Monstrous Men?, which she wrote a couple of years ago and was everywhere. Uh, It's about art in the age of Me Too. As the blurb says, does genius deserve special dispensation? Does making amazing art excuse horrible behavior? Dederer talks about how do we justify our love of works by terrible people? It also explores if being a monster is part of genius. Like, do you have to have some bad in you to make good? It sounds fascinating, and I think it's really timely because, as a lot of you know, Anne Perry just died uh, in 1992 when Peter Jackson started making a movie about a murder in his home country, I believe. I believe it's his home country. They discovered that Anne Perry, the famous New York Times bestselling author, was a teenage murderer. She and her friend murdered her friend's mother, and she had changed her name and moved away, and people were just scandalized. They couldn't believe it. I remember my mom worked at the library and the bookstore at the time, and people were like, oh my goodness, you need to remove her books from the shelves. She's a murderer. But like in the same, you know, breath also being like, and could you, you know, get me the new Norman Mailer, you know, who stabbed his wife, which people don't seem to to realize, um, you know. And so I just think it's going to be fascinating to read this book because, I, you know, I, I sometimes say like problematic faves about things because there are people who have done great things, but also are not great people or have made horrible mistakes, you know? And so I think this is a, is going to be really fun to read. It's called Monsters, A Fan's Dilemma by Claire Detterer. And my last pick is out in paperback today. It's Gillespiana's Guide to Catholic School by Sonora Reyes. And this is one of the most highly decorated YA novels of the last year. It was a finalist for the Morris Award for Best Debut Novel, the National Book Award in Young People's Literature, the Goodreads Choice Award, and was an honor winner of the Walter Dean Myers Award and the Pura Belpre. And I have to admit I haven't read it yet, though it is at the tippy top of my to-be-read, and I have to get to it soon because I have like overdone my renewal limit on this one. So the story follows 16-year-old Yamile Flores, who is one of the only Mexican-American kids in her very white Catholic school. She doesn't like the fact, but it does help distract people from her secret, which is that she is gay. She does not want her peers to know this because uh, it could put a big target on her back. More, she knows she has to keep it quiet because uh, she was accidentally outed at her old school, which is why she had to transfer to Slayton in the first place. 
She's committed, absolutely committed to not falling in love, to making sure that her mom will be proud of her, and to keep an eye on her brother. But what makes faking being straight hard is this girl that she meets named Bo. Bo is openly out, and she is also quite good looking and talented and smart and everything Yami could ever want in a girlfriend. She refuses to let herself fall in love with Bo, but maybe her feelings won't let her listen to her needs. This book is one packed with humor and heart and has been compared to Erica L. Sanchez's I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter, which I love, and I'm really excited to get to it. And that is The Lesbiana's Guide to Catholic School by Sonora Reyes, out in paperback today. All right. And now we're going to talk about a few more books that are out in paperback today, starting with Shudder by Ramona Emerson. This is about a Navajo woman who is a crime scene photographer in New Mexico who has the ability to talk to the dead. And while she is on site photographing an apparent suicide, the victim tells her that she was murdered and she becomes involved in the case. This was on the National Book Awards long list, and it's really great. I believe there's going to be another book in the series. Notes on Your Sudden Disappearance by Allison Espach. This was a book riot favorite about two sisters who fall in love with the same boy over a summer and a tragedy that connects them. One of my favorite books from last year, a couple of years ago, Slewfoot, A Tale of Bewitchery by Brom. Set in Puritan times, it's your basic land grab by claiming a widow is a witch uh, by the townspeople. But the widow has a new pal whose name is Satan, or Slewfoot, if you want to call him that. And he is indeed new. He was reborn in the woods, and he doesn't know anything about himself. But except that maybe he doesn't want to be the evil demon that the woodland critters who resurrected him tell him that he is. Maybe he just wants to be a regular guy. Index, History of the... A Bookish Adventure from Medieval Manuscripts to the Digital Age by Dennis Duncan. This is a super epic nerd purr for book lovers and card catalog fans and people who love to learn things about the history of the Index from the 13th century up to today. Firekeeper's Daughter by Angeline Bowley. This was a Prince Medal winner, a Morris Award winner, an American Indian Youth Literature Award YA honor book, a Reese Witherspoon Hello Sunshine Book Club YA pick, it is a YA thriller about a native teen girl who puts off attending college after a tragedy strikes her family on their reservation, and when she witnesses a murder, she agrees to go undercover to stop any more harm from coming to people around her. Another one of my favorite books from last year, The Caretakers by Amanda Bester Siegel, about a group of au pairs in France. We know at the very beginning of the book that a child has died in the care of one of them, and then the book goes back to tell us what led up to that event. I think this would make a really great book club book. There is a lot to unpack here and a lot to discuss. Some people behave badly, some others don't. It's very, very interesting. I loved it. And This Delicious Death by Kayla Cottingham. This is a paperback original, a teen lesbian horror novel about four girls who are zombies who attend a music conference out in the desert and uncover a sinister plot that apparently is like more sinister than wanting to eat people. So I don't even know what that could be. Um, wanting to eat bunnies, maybe? I'm not sure. Oh, Kelly, I'm sorry. That would, you know, that would be a terrible horror book for you, Kelly. <laughs> people eating bunnies. Well, honestly, sometimes <laughs> bunnies need to be put in their place. <laughs> like the ones in Monty Python. And that 
is it for paperbacks. Kelly, what are you going to read next? I am currently reading Enter the Body by Joy McCullough, which is a fascinating story of the women in Shakespeare reclaiming their own story. It's told in verse, and I am loving it. What about you? Joy McCullough is amazing. Just totally amazing. Yeah. Every book that comes out, I'm just floored. Like, how does she do that? Um, I am reading Black River Orchard by Chuck Wendig, which comes out on September 26th, which is basically about evil apples. Just go with me. It's true. And also, People Who Talk to Stuffed Animals Are Nice Stories by Ayo Ome, translated by Emily Balistrieri. This comes out June 6th. And how, how could you not read a book that has that title? Mm-hmm. <laughs> It actually, uh, in Japan, is called People Who Talk to Plushies Are Nice, uh, which is apparently a novella in the collection, which has already been made into a movie. So, very excited about that. Plus, it has a teddy bear on the cover. So, I mean, win-win. So, that is it for us today, book lovers. Make sure you check out the deep dive at bookriot.substack.com. Thank you to our sponsors. Thank you to our awesome audio editor, Jen Zink. You can drop us a line at allthebooks at bookriot.com and tell us about your area code or send us cat <laughs> pictures or whatever. Kelly, where can people find you online? Uh, I'm still on Twitter at Veronica Kelly Mars. We'll see how long that lasts. Yeah. What about you? I hang out on Instagram at Franzen Comes Alive. And if you want to give us a treat, you can go to Apple Podcasts, not evil Apple Podcasts, just Apple Podcasts or Spotify. <laughs> And leave a review or a rating. It helps other book lovers to find us. Thank you to everyone who has done that. And as much as we would love to tell you about more books today, we just don't have the time, but you can read about more titles out now in the show notes at bookriot.com slash all the books, as well as find a link to our weekly new books newsletter. And for more recs or general bookishness, check out bookriot.com. And don't forget to check out our full stable of podcasts at bookriot.com slash listen, or just search Book Riot on your podcast player of choice. And in the meantime... Happy Happy reading. Happy reading.